Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. A lot of behind the scenes drama on this episode because I used my my skills of manipulation to get Luke to acquiesce to the movie. Uh, Luke was very much against watching this movie, <laughs> and I had to watching it. I just didn't. I had to feel bully like him today. I had to bully him and bully him and bully him. Uh, Sometimes Will and I are not always on the same page. We're, we're always. I think we're basically always on the same page as to whether something could be a good candidate for discussion eventually but it's just we don't always agree about like is the vibe right today well i was just thinking about my own spiritual mentor estus w perkle and what does he say when he's trying to convince someone of something he bulldozes he says you've got to do this you've got to do this and that's what we did today well, since this is one of those, you know, absolutely tiresome evangelical movies, I might as well talk about a few related matters. And by the way, this is a film about hell, uh, and it's not very good, but actually, in in a way, it is pretty good, because though its depictions of hell are pretty unconvincing, the experience of actually watching oh. it, you know... <laughs> But all right, look, so this is only partly related, but Mike Pence and Chris Christie, folks, they launched their campaigns this week. I don't know how I made this my beat. I've been watching a lot of the DeSantis events. I've been watching. I watch Christie. I watch Pence. I am unmoved in what has been kind of my uh, my attitude towards all of these guys so far, which is that they are going to lose to Donald Trump uh, probably badly. In the case of Christie especially, and probably Pence too, <laughs> again, in the case of all of these high-profile candidates, I think they're going to lose and i think they're going to be humiliated quite badly now the only reason to care about this or be interested in it is because these primaries you know like the 2016 primaries are an interesting experiment they're a test case about you know where the the beating heart of modern conservatism really is and you know i think i put it this way to you before well but if donald trump doesn't win you know, if he is defeated outright in these primaries, I mean, I think people like me are going to have to rethink our understanding of the contemporary right, because as I see it, I mean, I really think Donald Trump has made his affectations and, you know, his personality. I mean, they're just so interwoven now with, you know, the sort of grievances and prejudices of the Republican base. And also, you know, more broadly, the Trumpian sensibility is an international export. I mean, it is where, you know, a lot of sort of demagogic, you know, right wing leaders, you know, they draw inspiration from it. But uh, OK, just to, to talk about, you know, Chris Christie and Mike Pence here a little bit. So, I mean, I don't know if you followed this at all, but, you know, Mike Pence, uh, he launched his campaign with this video where, I mean, you know, he's he's clearly, as you might expect, you know, making a play for the evangelical vote. And, you know, what's kind of curious about his video is that all the messaging is just like it, it honestly is kind of like Bidenism. But then all the imagery is making a play for the evangelical vote. So, of course, the video makes visual reference to, you know, drag time story hour, all that kind of stuff. But then all of the messaging is just sort of vintage pre-2016 sort of like here's what a mainstream Republican candidate sounds like talking about you know America's best days are ahead the American people always rise to a challenge all that kind of stuff it didn't make reference to Trump directly the ad but obviously that's kind of all there in the background and I don't know Pence presumably is making some ludicrous calculation that like by virtue of having been part of the Trump administration he can sort of <laughs> does he think he can make Trump Trump vulnerable because Trump's not a real evangelical? Well, I mean, that's a funny suggestion. I mean, again, if so, then he's completely misreading the whole situation. And that question, I think, will be relevant when we get to talking about the <laughs> film, actually. But I mean, obviously, you know, MAGA people uh, hate Mike Pence.
sense because of his, you know, betrayal of uh, of the boss on on yeah. January sixth. Chris Christie, obviously not making, you know, he's he wasn't really making an appeal for evangelicals, but his his whole shtick is just unbelievable. You know, I wrote about this week, this week, and I described it as like his launch was kind of like a garbled transmission beamed across time from a distant galaxy where people still like Dick Cheney or something. This is vintage tough guy, but also like bow tie conservatism from pre twenty sixteen. So Christie began with this like twenty minute spiel where he's talking about Alexander Hamilton and. Lincoln and the Greeks and all this kind of stuff. And then he compared Donald Trump to Lord Voldemort, which, you know, <laughs> come on. And, and you know, the reason he did that, I guess the context is important, even if it's fucking stupid. But the, the context for that was Christie's trying to do this thing where he's like, all the other candidates are too cowardly to mention, you know, he it's he who must not be named, whereas I will, like, attack him. And what's Christie standing up for beyond that? Like, is he standing against wokeness or is he going back to, like, foreign invaders? That kind of I did thing. not watch all three hours of his town hall style event, admittedly. But honestly, he was talking about when did compromise become such a dirty word? He was oh, kind of going. He I was, don't know. I think he was kind of going after DeSantis a little bit, where it's sort of like he he has his little fiefdom. Whereas I was governor of New Jersey, so I had to get things done. So again, just further to my point that this is just this kind of weird throwback type of conservatism, where the only way you can comprehend why anyone would try this is they just have not accommodated themselves to the idea that like Trumpism was not a sort of fever dream or a random event like it does signify you know and the ways in which this is true could be debated in detail but you know, it does signify some sort of you know structural shift in the politics and you know the, the style of the right both Pence and Christie albeit in different ways don't seem to really get this I don't think DeSantis gets it either like we, we've talked before about DeSantis and you know I've been writing about this of late. The DeSantis campaign reminds me most of the Ted Cruz campaign in 2016 against Donald Trump, where the Republican elites were like, okay, you know, we can recalibrate, you know, Ted Cruz can outflank Donald Trump by just, you know, being really mean and like and cruel and, and, and brutal and nasty. And whatever the chuds want, just feed it to them. Whatever the sort of extremely online chuds, whatever they want, you just you just give it to them. You know, and then I guess right now Pence is trying to do a sort of more, you know, traditionally upright style of campaign with this, um, you know, it's like Bidenism with this evangelical twist. And then you got Christie, who's just doing, like, when did compromise become a dirty word? I was tossing all this around with some colleagues earlier this week. And, you know, one of them uh, put to me the seemingly plausible explanation. You know, I don't even think they were really standing behind it. I think they were just sort of uh, tossing it out there. I mean, you might ask, if these guys are just going to lose, like, why would they be crazy enough to do this? Like, maybe they know they're going to lose. Like, maybe there's some other objective they have in mind, which in U.S. presidential politics today is a thing that happens, right? Uh, do you think Christie is a double agent to take away from DeSantis's vote vote share? <laughs> that would be fun to think. But the thing is, right, these guys are going to get humiliated. Think about what Donald Trump is going to do to Chris Christie. Donald Trump has already humiliated Chris Christie so many times. Like, Chris Christie's memoir that came out a few years ago, like, the shit that Donald Trump did to Chris Christie is so funny. Because Christie was an anti-Trump guy during the primaries. He got owned. He became, But he was the first one to endorse he, Trump. Absolutely. Yeah. So he was like, all right, I'm just going to be a 
serve. I'm going to be a little piggy. I'm going to be as servile as possible. And then I'm going to get to be, you know, uh, vice president, vice president or secretary of something or other. And, you know, in the memoir, you know, you, you learn that Trump would do things like he would tell Christie, like, you know, after the election, not calling Christie, just we're going to leave him hanging. Then he'd finally be like, oh, yeah, come to the Trump Tower at such and such a time for a meeting. Christie would go there. They'd be like, oh, uh, Trump will be along a little bit. Hours would go by. And then they'd just be like, oh, yeah, uh, actually, he's not coming. So Trump was literally just, you know, humiliating him and leaving him hanging. So I don't know, you know, in Christie's case, there's probably a personal motivation for this. Like he wants to get revenge, how he thinks he's going to do that in the context of the Republican primary electorate in 2023 is simply beyond me. But, you know, people do run for president to just get a gig, you know, get a media job or, you know, that's what a lot of politics is today, political staffing as well. You know, you're the White House press secretary and actually, that's less important than the gig you get on MSNBC after or whatever. But I don't think that's what's happening here. The only way I can make any of these events legible, the DeSantis campaign, the Pence one, the Christie one, any of these guys is that they actually are deluded enough to think that they can win. And the only way to maintain that delusion is if you believe that conservatism is going to revert to what it was before 2016. And I just don't believe that's the case. Well, Luke, you'll be glad to know that this season of Vanderpump Rules has finally come to its conclusion. Last week, they aired the third of the three-part reunion episode. That's right. They spread it over three. This is, this is, the Republican primaries are my beat, and this is, this is Will's. The season finale of Vanderpump Rules got about twice as many viewers as Succession did in its season finale, so. That's incredible. Yeah. The Succession got 2.9 million viewers, and Vanderpump got well over 4 million, like, you know. (laughs) There's the season finale, and then there was a three-part reunion episode where they get they get everyone in a room. It's to, like the after show to hash over <laughs> what has happened. And Andy Cohen hosts it, and who morally is no better than Jerry Springer. You know, getting these freaking coked out, allegedly coked out reality stars in a room, allegedly a friend group. But you know, the wounds at this point are just so deep. This is not a functioning friend group. I was reading a profile of Ariana Maddox, the wronged party in the Scandival scandal, uh, in Glamour magazine. She's the cover story, a profile called The Vindication of Ariana Maddox. And uh, I was compelled by this paragraph. It's here we must pause and wonder whether anyone reading this really needs a comprehensive rundown of the Vanderpump Rules drama that has captivated everyone from a room full of politicians, that's the White House Correspondents' Dinner where Ariana Maddox was a guest, to (laughs) Jennifer Lopez. We already know the players. You've already poured over the timeline. What you need to know is that Maddox, a 37-year-old former bartender, had a partner in work and in life for nine years before he cheated on her with their 28-year-old dear friend and co-star. Rachel Levis. Maddox's sex life and sexuality has since been publicly scrutinized. Her known apathy towards marriage and procreation is now a thing to be re-examined. Her struggles with mental health have been weaponized by someone she once trusted. A less enterprising woman might have done nothing but shriek into a pillow for the last 97 days, but Maddox has chosen to leverage her pain and lend some of it to Beak and Uber One 
and Lay's and Bloomingdale's and finance app SoFi and Nutrafol and the custom merch for Something About Her, the sandwich shop she's about to open with co-star Katie Maloney, which has brought in around $200,000. All in, Maddox has reportedly netted upwards of $1 million on the back of her breakup. Having a boyfriend is great, but have you ever had corporate money hurtling into your checking account? Uh, and in the next paragraph, she goes on to explain that... By, by the way, sorry to, sorry to interject, but I love how you and I like periodically would be like, oh yeah, you know, doing a podcast is debasing if we monetize our friendship and then you read about this and it's like what do those questions look like when you're talking about like a reality show about like your intimate relationships that like four million people watched one episode okay what does the self mean at that point this is the difference between us and them and maybe it's a difference of degree rather than kind i don't know but the thing is we get on this mic and we talk about things yeah and and we don't like each other either obviously well of course but we talk about things on mic whereas they talk about like their lives are the art right right and their lives are the subject ariana maddox goes on to explain in this article she says we have no generational wealth in our family. I want to make enough money to be able to take care of my mom and my brother and any other family members who may or may not need it. I never want to worry about it ever, ever, ever. So I will work as much as possible to not have to. So this is an opportunity. This is this is her moment. And she is taking every endorsement deal she's doing. She's probably going to be on Dancing with the Stars next year. She is she is getting that bag. And I, I respect that only insofar as we live. We live in a depraved, a fallen world, an evil society. <laughs> <laughs> and and looking at her position, looking at what are the best things she can do in this situation, I would say so. Yes, that is that is probably the best the best course of action right now. Get all that money and maybe hopefully disappear at some point. You live on a mountain somewhere with you know the five million dollars you've made. Now regarding the scandal, I think deep immersion in this has been bad for my mental health. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks ago, I was in a bar, a sports bar in Parkdale that, you know, normally plays sports games. But on Wednesday nights, they had turned it into a Vanderpump night. And you could order you could order a pump teeny, which, by the way, is shit. I do not (laughs) recommend the pump teeny. What what is it? What's in it? It's just a fucking vile, sugary, pink, like cocktail or something. I'm sure there's vodka in there. But for the most part, it's sugar. It's a (laughs) morally, I don't approve of it. It's like, grow up and have a grown-up drink, you fuckers. It's awful. Watching the first two of the three reunion episodes in a bar with, like, a hooting crowd of Bravo fans, I found it deeply troubling. Like, I found it triggering. You're, you're like a Roman citizen watching, like, gladiators kill each other. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> you're at the Circus Maximus. M- Mr. Sandoval, Ms. Levis. Yes, they are the wronging parties. But to have this bar full of people... Like, like, these are, these are sick people, okay? These are... <laughs> This is not a good way to live your life. But come on, you love this show. I love the show, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, like, you're in a bar with all these people who are, like, booing and hissing these people, cheering on the other ones. And I, I just want to say, like, you understand that we're no better wa- watching this right now. And as Mr. Andy Cohen, a snake himself... <laughs> correctly said you know no one on this stage has their hands clean everybody on this stage has been involved in a cheating scandal on this show at some point and then of course you know the characters which is what they are they're characters they're not people the characters will stand up and say it's completely different they were having a seven-month affair with her best friend i only hooked up with that guy the one time and it was early in my relationship and it was this and this and this and this 
So I don't know. I think Vanderpump Rules is a show to be watched, you know, in in monk-like isolation, understanding that the act of doing it is a sin and just being comfortable with that and being in a bar and watching it with a whole crowd of people cheering the heroes and hissing the villains put me in a very bad and dark place. But fortunately, I've been risen out of that bad and dark place because I've reacquainted myself with the potential of art, specifically in the form of two of my favorite artists, the director, Ron Ormond, and the preacher slash performance artist, Estes W. Perkle, with their 1974 film, The Burning Hell. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, And fear not them which kill the body, but after that have nothing more that they can do, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell fire. What a sobering thought. Jesus was talking about a place called hell, and it was in an expanse like this that we see for the first time people actually being put into hell. Now, uh, these two have actually been, they're sort of minor characters in the Michael and Us cosmologies from sort of like Michael and Us season two, maybe? Yeah, a long time ago, episode 40, 50, something yeah. like there, we watched their 1971 film, which is still one of my favorites, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Yeah, now that film is, uh, as I recall, is a perfect encapsulation of sort of like right-wing politics, specifically during the Cold War where it's just like absolutely everything that's bad is a sort of gateway to communism. So taxes are going to lead to communism, but so are, you know, licentious sexual mores or whatever. Like everything that the right disapproves of is communism. You still find this on the right today, but it was extremely potent during the Cold War. And I mean, in that film, you know, I, I like how it represents communism almost as like this like it's 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 like an infection. It's like if you're not if you're not vigilant as a person, like you will get the the infection of communism. Well, actually, what happened in it was it was structured around this one sermon by Estes Perkle, you know, a real fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. And you know, you see him preaching, but then it keeps cutting to like reenactments and like little dramatic visualizations of what he's saying. Very very low budget stuff. Very cheap renderings. <laughs> and his line of argument is American society is becoming so depraved so sex obsessed and don't think your children are escaping it like that school dance they're going to yeah that's a doorway to sex those liberal progressive teachers who are teaching sex education they're not just telling you like what the body parts do they're saying how you should use them well this is what the, you know the whole moral panic that they've engineered over the past couple years around you know public schools and teachers and you know all the yeah, grooming the same discourse. Thing, literally the exact same thing and perkle's argument then develops to say you know, we are a special nation. God cares about us. God is protecting us. But if we keep doing this, God will stop protecting us. And that will lead to the literal communist invasion. <laughs> and it's peculiar in that movie because he's not saying that it's from within. You know, he's not saying that we'll become so depraved that we'll become communist. He's saying that we'll become so weak and God will not protect us. And then the Cubans and the Russians are going to storm the beaches and they're going to take it over. Another question. I'd like to know what's your attitude toward dancing. You say, preacher, times have changed. I don't see anything wrong with dancing today. Dancing is just as wrong as it's always been. You say, what's wrong with it? It's the front door to adultery. The thing that started on the dance floor is expected to be finished in a parked car or a motel somewhere. Now, folks, if footmen tire you, what will horses do? It's about 50 minutes long. Go on YouTube right now. Just watch it. You're going to enjoy it. It's really funny. <laughs>
Well, of course, Pat Robertson died this week, and you know a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, rest and piss. A lot of yeah, a lot of people will know him. Probably, probably his most famous moment was right after nine eleven when he went on the seven hundred club and he said, "This is God punishing America for yeah tolerance of gay people or whatever." And I mean, something like that speaks to many things. But one of them, I think, is that, you know, when we talk about anything to do with right-wing uh, evangelical Protestantism in America, like, what we're talking about is also just a, a particular form of American nationalism. And I'm introducing this idea now because I want to talk about it in relation to this movie as well. The worldview of an Estes Perkel or a Pat Robertson is such that individual nation-states, but particularly the United States, like... These are units that the Almighty considers in his calculations, which just keep that in mind uh, as we go forward to talk about uh, this movie. So a little background on the film and the people who made it. The director is one Ron Ormond, who is a longtime showman and exploitation film producer director. He began his career as a vaudeville performer in sort of the waning days of vaudeville, like the 30s and 40s. That's where he met his wife, June Ormond, another vaudeville performer. The two of them married and became partners. They became impresarios. They would tour with like faded cowboy stars. I think they they toured with the Three Stooges in kind of the Shemp era, you know, took them from southern town to southern town to perform to, you know, audiences of children, you know, kind of when they were at a nadir of popularity. If they're on the, the Shemp circuit. The Shemp circuit, By yes. By the way, that, is the most, that may be the most Will Sloan fact we've ever gotten on this show. Well, we're going to get even more because <laughs> when they transitioned into film, they started with Westerns and they started with movies that were basically filmed vaudeville performances. Their best known movie was called Mesa of Lost Women, which was like a science fiction film. And Ron Ormond was actually a friend and colleague of Ed Wood's. Wow. Ed Wood's film Jailbait, uh, Ormond worked on. He shares the same musical score as Mesa of Lost Women. Man, I'm not a religious person, but this really is making me see a deeper harmony in the universe. Amazing how everything is connected. I didn't mention this on the Ed Wood episode, but one thing, one thing that's not fully accurate about the Tim Burton film is it sort of positions Ed Wood as like a complete outsider. And I mean, he he was an outsider, but it's like he was part of an ecosystem of really low budget guys who were working. Right. I've been in a Ron Orman state of mind this week because uh, I just got this. I'm holding it right now. This incredible, this beautiful book you this, have. This yeah. stunning new book called The Exotic Ones, The Fabulous Filmmaking Family from Music City, USA, The Ormans by Jimmy McDonough, who also wrote definitive biographies of Russ Meyer and Andy Milligan. It's this giant, like, the size of a cement block, basically, and about as heavy, you know, beautifully designed book, as well as a Blu-ray set of uh, many of their restored movies was released. Well, so how do they get from this vaudeville shtick to doing these evangelical films? Well, throughout the 60s, I mean, they made There's all... a road to Damascus moment, well, presumably. Well, actually, he I mean... He falls off a donkey somewhere. Key to the mythology was that in the late 1960s, Ron Orman survived a plane crash. And in surviving that crash, he decided to devote his life to Christianity. Now, it's possible to poke holes in that because the first movie he made after that was called The Exotic Ones, which is a kind of, you know, gory, you know, sh shit horror movie. Right, so the, the, the moral revelation took a little while. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it appears that both Ron and his son, Tim, they did join the church. They gave themselves over to Christ. June might have uh, had a little less fervor about it, but... Um, What's really important is you can make a showman Christian, but he's still a showman. So he hooked up with Estes Perkel... <laughs> 
whose home state was Georgia, although he also preached all throughout the South, and he uh, had a congregation called Locust Grove Church. Perkle was saved at the age of 10. When he was 10 years old, he found out about hell, really didn't like the idea, (laughs) and gave himself over to Christ. And Perkle was born in 1930, so he was actually quite a bit younger than Ron Ormond, and he was only 44 when this was made, which surprised me. He looks like about 70 if he's a day. He's 44? I know, that's fucked up. I mean, (laughs) he seems incredibly old. He has this, like, evil Mr. Rogers energy to him. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I'm willing to believe that Ron Ormond became a sort of devoted, born-again Christian, but, like, he didn't lose his showman's energy, you know, <laughs> that if Footman Tire You, What Will Horses Do is replete with scenes of the communist invaders, like, cutting off children's heads and, you know, <laughs> blood everywhere. And But, but like, I love, I love this era of his career particularly because these are truly, like, not Hollywood. They're grassroots productions made in the South. Non-professional actors. like Yeah, people from Estes Perkle's congregation. They're, 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 re- they're reenacting like, like scenes from the Old Testament. And it'll be like a <laughs> bunch of guys who are just like Southerners being like, Hey, Moses, get over here. What's the deal? Yeah, and they're dressed in like the cheapest Halloween costume. <laughs> this is why I find these movies just a little bit charming. Like they feel like the community got together and made a movie, you know? <laughs> like you can imagine. The, imagine the the excitement at the church when they were making these movies in fact i have a, a quote here from that new biography there was a crew member named eddie king who was 18 years old when he was working on the set of this movie eddie king said i went to a couple of estes sunday services and he could really bring in the vote so to speak he had these people imbued with his sense of mission that by participating in this picture they were going to be known for having changed the world On the shoot, it was not uncommon for whoever you were standing next to in costume and makeup to just spontaneously start talking about how we're just bringing people to the Lord. Their level of commitment was sharp, far beyond what I have experienced in any other kind of production. So, you know, this movie, like If Footmen Tire You, which I assume you've all paused the podcast and gone and watched, you know, as as homework. It's structured around Estes Perkle at the pulpit, delivering a long sermon. Although, you know, you said the director is a showman. And what's so funny is he's constantly shooting him from these angles that don't really make sense. So it's like he's, he's a showman, not a craftsman. Yeah, yeah. He's Estes is supposed to be speaking to his congregation. But then like the angles will just be him off to the side speaking to the camera. It looks ridiculous. It's like accidentally quite funny. Well, his subject for this sermon is hell. And boy, is it ever. It it doesn't really get a lot deeper than that. Impressively, it opens on, you know, Mount Sinai, the actual Mount Sinai, with recreations of Bible stories, you know, depicting the origin of hell. Before cutting to Perkle's church in the present day, the inciting incident of the story begins when two groovy biker dudes, one of whom is played by director Ron Orman's son, Tim, show up in Perkle's office. And I don't know how this is explained in the plot. I don't think it is, but they don't even know they're in a preacher's office. They've just wandered in. It doesn't make any sense. Why are they there to talk to him? Again, they're cool, easy rider type dudes. This is funny, too, because in, I guess, the moral universe of this film, I feel like Estes... Perkle and his ilk, you know, it's like, you don't even want to contemplate people who aren't Christians. 
So, like, you would think these guys would be atheists, but it turns out they just go to some, you know, one of those zany churches where they believe in these nutty ideas like universal salvation. Except then, because it's the early 70s, of course, they are depicted as these, yeah, like, easy rider types. So they're like, ooh, the Old Testament, extremely not groovy, man. Yeah, so they've been subscribing to the teaching of one uh, doctor, doctor something or other, who <laughs> I don't think was a real person. He's just He just stands in for he's, all he's, progressive yeah, he's, Christians. He's there to represent the corrosive forces of progressive modernity who want you to believe in, yeah, universal salvation. There are some groovy <laughs> preachers out there who are saying that hell is not a literal thing, <laughs> that actually hell is a state of mind. One of, one of the guys said, he's like, yeah, our church is new. You dig it? <laughs> you know? And in fact, God loves you. That's that's what some of the groovier, more progressive <laughs> preachers are saying. Uh, God, God loves you and wants you to be saved. Hey, preach, what are you preaching on? My subject is hell. Ain't we having a good time? Let me tell you something, young man. Hell is not to be taken lightly. And unless you are saved, that's where you two are headed for right now. What a yeah. rip off that. Don't leave me alone. God said leave me alone. Hey, preach, I want you to dig this. If I do go to hell, there's going to be a lot of my friends waiting there on me. Do you understand? Yeah. I said leave me alone. Yeah, he says our church is new. You dig? I suppose thinking about it, these two guys are meant to just be a pastiche of everything that's bad because they one of them also makes a reference to Hades. So it's like they're being taught. Oh, they're pagan they're as well. They're also yeah. pagan. Yeah. There are all sorts of other gods like Shiva. And... <laughs> yeah, Zeus, he sounds pretty, pretty groovy. And Perkle explains, no, there is such a thing as hell. Uh, hell is very real. <laughs> and you're going to go there if you don't repent. <laughs> and the two bikers, you know, one of them kind of can be saved and the other one is too groovy to be saved. And so he says, Listen, man, I didn't come here for a sermon, dude. I'm going to go out and continue sinning because God loves sin. That's what my progressive teacher told us. And then he gets killed, like, right away. Instantly. Awesome. Dies in a motorcycle accident. And then the other the other groovy hepcat, the one played by the director's son, wanders in a daze over to the church where Perkle is leading a sermon. And this is the funniest scene in the movie. Oh, it, it rocks so hard. He comes in and he walks down the aisle. And Perkle gets from his pulpit. We were on a gravel road and he went over a hill and he lost control. Pre preacher, he's dead. I, I got to know. Is, is, he, is, he, is he just going to a grave? He's not going to hell, is he? I'm afraid he is. Chances are he's likely burning in the flames of hell right now. But I'm worried about you. I'd like to see you saved. Why don't you sit here for the rest of the service? It's so good. He's like, Preacher, is he just going to go in a grave? Is that all there is? Is he going to go to heaven? It's like, no, no at this moment, nope. he is burning in hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he keeps saying, my son, it gives me no pleasure to tell you this. And it's like, it definitely I, it, does. It yeah. brings some pleasure. <laughs> so uh, the film goes along. I mean, there's not a lot of texture. There aren't a lot of layers to say. What you need to know is hell is real. And it's not just pure emotion that's guiding him. He's done his research. You know, some might say that the word hell in the King James Bible originally translates to grave, and that means something different. Well, no. We got this other translation that says that hell means exactly what you think it is. And here's a word. It says worm. Well, actually, it means maggot. And those maggots are going to be on you for all eternity. And there's real scholarship to tell you that hell is real and maggots are real. And Right. Well, that, that seems very interesting. And I think is, is it is important to understanding the theology 
that's on display in a movie like this, you know, the theology of this particular strand of right-wing Christianity. Because, yeah, like, he explains by diving into the, you know, the etymology of different words for worm, and uh, what was this in the original Greek? There's a rational explanation for it. Like, if you just do the homework, if, you know, if you apply the right tools of Christian science, then, you know, it's, it's all right there for you. And that honestly is what I found kind of interesting about this movie. I mean, you remarked that there is sort of an accidental beauty of the sort of scenes in hell and things like that. Yeah, it looks like Kenneth Anger's inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, if anyone's seen that film. It has this like handmade, you know, like <laughs> I think face paint quality. I think it just in the metaphysics of, of this movie... Hell is just like Burning Man if it got out of hand. Like people are just kind of, they're rolling around in the dirt. There's some fire burning. People are sort of saying, what have I done? How did I get myself into this? You know, they, they told me not to go to Burning Man and I couldn't help myself. The other funniest part of the movie is Perkle is trying to underline just how long you're going to be in hell. Well, and he this, says this again, this is the exact same thing I was just talking about. He says, you're going to be there for a long time. Like if you get damned, I mean, first there's a period you may be sitting around in the waiting room for 2000 years and then finally you'll get your judgment read to you and if you're damned after that judgment you're going to be there for not a million years not a billion years not a trillion years and then he literally pulls he's out like a- he's like look at this chart right over here after he's served you like all these different numbers with increasing numbers of zeros added and then he has to mathematically explain he shows you a chart where it has the, the number one followed by several rows of zeros that he says look that's a million that's a trillion we're not even through the first row yet <laughs> You're going to be there, and it's even longer than this. That's how long you're going to be in hell. Take a look at this chart. My aim is to try to help you think of the length of time in hell. One with nine zeros added to it represents one million years. Add three more zeros, and it represents a billion years. Add three more zeros, and it represents a trillion years. But as you can see here, you have one with all of these zeros representing 300 zeros years. After this much time has elapsed in hell, what time is it? Well, let me say this. After this much time has been consumed, there will still not be one speck of hope for a sinner to ever escape hell. He must remain there forever. That's important to understanding what the theology of right-wing evangelical Christianity in the United States really is ostensibly it's like you believe in heaven and hell but then the conception of time like it still bears sort of earthly quantification like it's still it still calls for that i mean it's exactly the same thing as someone like pat robertson thinking that an omnipotent almighty god that transcends space and time is deeply concerned with what happens to like an individual nation state that's only existed since the 18th century well also in the scenes in hell we see people basically still inhabiting their corporeal bodies like perkle is saying you're going to be feeling you're gonna be feeling this pain on and on and on and on and on at a certain point you would probably acclimatize to the after a billion years it it sort of cuts to a guy where it's like oh this is what it's like after a thousand years and then he's still sort of saying stuff like oh what did i do oh i didn't listen and it's like okay i'll buy the idea that if it's hell you know hell can still subject him to the same levels of unimaginable pain after a thousand years but he wouldn't still be just going around in circles with the same kind of like circuitous thought pattern He would have acclimatized himself to like, well, yeah, I'm just here now and it sucks, you know? (laughs) 
like I do every day of my life. <laughs> the conceptions of hell and heaven offered in the world of this movie are so pedestrian. You know, like when he's speaking from the pulpit and he's telling them what hell is like. I mean, yeah, there's eternal pain and all this kind of stuff. But then he's saying like, there are no movies to see. There are no vacations with your family. No cook-offs. And it's like, I guess the implication is, well, in heaven, you get to do all those things. And I love the <laughs> idea that like, it's such a terrestrial version of heaven and hell, where even heaven, which is supposed to transcend all of this it's like you just get to do the best version of it right. you know like there's a scene where you know somebody's admitted into heaven and then god says to him like here you will know no sickness or hunger or whatever and it's like shouldn't heaven be a little better than that shouldn't it be more than just the absence of sort of earthly frustrations and, and deprivations by the way we also sampled a few minutes of the uh, subsequent film in the trilogy the final film in the perkle ormond trilogy called the believer's heaven which which is my least favorite of the three, but that was the one where Perkle said, you know what, I've been telling people about hell too much. Now I'm going to show them heaven. And I just like how the Believer's Heaven starts, like Perkle enters the frame, you see him from the rear, and then he turns around. I love the movie star entrance, because at this point, if you've seen all three movies, you fucking love Perkle at this it, it point. It worked on me. I was like, there he is. <laughs> yeah, there's our guy. It's like James Bond, like in the opening, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. bullet thing. Uh, but in The Believer's Heaven, it's just their conception of heaven is like just some guys in like togas in a park, you know, looks looks pretty shit. It, it, looks, like a, it looks like an episode of Star Trek, the original series, where they go to a planet that seems very utopian but then you know the prime directive will be tested yeah so basically it's corny as hell but fundamentally all of that is why i find this extremely bad and boring and heavy-handed movie very interesting because i actually think it is accidentally or maybe not accidentally an incredible depiction of what you know right-wing evangelical christianity is fundamentally about everything in it is incredibly boring everything is very terrestrially grounded when the deprivations of hell are, are articulated to you when the, the pleasures of heaven are articulated to you all of them have these like very crude earthly reference points the proof of all of this, you know, the proof that when it says in the Bible, like about worms, you know, those are literal worms. Well, well, the proof of that is just, you know, you got to know the sort of the history of like Greek translation and all this kind of stuff. None of this is recognizable to me as Christianity or Manetheism, as I understand those concepts. To really believe in those things, you have to maintain some idea of an enchanted world, of a world where not everything is rationally explainable, not everything has kind of earthly reference points. Accompanying that is some idea of transcendence in which, you know, presumably if there's an omnipotent force that transcends space and time, it's probably not that interested in like the policies of the United States Congress or something. And here I'm thinking about something, you know, very provocative and interesting that Matt Chrisman said a while ago, where basically he was putting forth the idea that right-wing evangelical Protestantism needs to be understood as a distinctive religion that isn't Christianity. Like it's, it's something else. And I think that makes sense when you think about its evolution. Obviously, you know, Europe experienced a transition to liberal capitalism as well. The thing is, in Europe and in other parts of the world, like, there were existing structures that that had to interact with. In the United States, where instead you have this frontier culture, you know, and this kind of ideology of settlement and, you know, manifest destiny, all this kind of stuff, all there is is small L liberalism. All there is is capitalism. So ultimately, you get this radicalized form of the Protestant ethic, which 
which, you know, in the case of sort of modern right-wing evangelicals like, you know, the Falwells or whatever, where, you know, they're not even concealing, like, all of this is just big business. You know, we got these mega churches that completely eschew the architectural design of churches as they've been for, you know, thousands of years. And instead, you know, you have those mega churches that just kind of look like rocket ships or whatever, you know, big glistening pyramids of glass. All of this culminates in an ideology of sort of, yeah, American national exceptionalism and all that kind of stuff. But then also just individual acquisitiveness is good. Greed is good. The hierarchies necessary to maintain and sustain all those things are good. And, you know, authority structures and all the rest of it. Whatever thing I want, uh, whatever would satiate my desires, that's all part of God's plan. And I know that because I have a personal relationship with God. To return to Christman's hypothesis here for a second, you can understand all of this as a distinctive religion in the sense that, I mean, to me, this is actually the religion of a disenchanted world. It is actually a fallen and materialist philosophy rather than one that actually meaningfully maintains a Manetheist idea of transcendence. Which, you know, it's interesting to watch a film like this with that in mind and think that, well, on some fundamental level, guys like Estes Perkle, Pat Robertson, like, yes, they believe this stuff and they believe it quite fanatically, but there is some very meaningful sense in which they don't actually believe in their own ostensible, you know, metaphysical commitments. Because fundamentally, they're not looking to anything that they think is transcendent. They're instead oriented towards the fallen world. And what they're really thinking about is how they can get the most out of that. You know, this actually takes us back to the beginning of the discussion, because, you know, you had that question about, like, does Mike Pence think that he can, like, outflank Trump with the evangelical vote? And, you know, you think about all those takes from liberals, especially where, you know, they thought it was going to be this big own to be like, oh, what, evangelicals are going to go for this Donald Trump guy? He's he's the most non-evangelical person at all. Doesn't all that contradict your, you know, your the, the pristine morality that you people preach? And it's like, no, actually, Donald Trump is the richest fulfillment of this doctrine imaginable because it's not actually about any of those things. All right. Just just one last thing before we go, like. Can you admit to me that if Estes Perkel is right, this would really suck? And, and like, can you imagine we're sitting there in that tableau we saw for a trillion, a billion, a bajillion years, all those zeros? It isn't, isn't one little part of you just a little bit afraid? In all honesty, though, I would take this film's depiction of hell over having to watch this movie over and over again oh. for eternity. <laughs> Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Give up.